Hi everyone, Steve Shepard here with the Natural Curiosity Project. I have a little history for you with this episode, but it's different than anything you've ever heard. It's about 1968 and the summer of love, but the story actually starts in 1967 with the westward migration of thousands of young people. They were in motion, and all roads led to California, to San Francisco mostly, where 30,000 people converged on the Haight-Ashbury for the Human Be-In Rally in January of that year. They came from all over the country, attracted by the opportunity to escape conservative values and to instead enjoy the great music scene and, let's face it, the nascent drug culture. Ken Kesey, the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and the inspiration for Tom Wolfe's book, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, toured the country in a psychedelically painted school bus with the Merry Pranksters, promoting LSD with Timothy Leary's message to turn on, tune in, and drop out. On the surface, life was exciting and carefree. The hippie counterculture was all about freedom and kindness, and they took the message on the road. They hitchhiked, they took public transportation, they turned the Volkswagen camper van into a lifestyle choice. But it wasn't all moonbeams and roses. As 67 gave way to 68, things began to happen. Bad things that ignited the passions of young people. There were good things, to be sure. The groundbreaking Civil Rights Act of 1968 was signed into law. Intel was founded. Doug Engelbart demonstrated hypertext, the technology that would ultimately power the World Wide Web 30 years or so later. The Beatles founded Apple Records, and Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In debuted on NBC. And a quarter of a million miles away, Jim Lovell, Bill Anders, and Frank Borman, aboard Apollo 8, orbited the moon for the first time and saw its far, dark side. But a dark side was brewing back on Earth. The Tet Offensive was underway in Vietnam, and photos from an unknown village called My Lai shattered an awful lot of innocence. Anti-war protests led to violent riots in Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, and in Chicago during the Democratic National Convention that saw Hubert Humphrey nominated and that ultimately launched the rise of Richard Nixon, protesters chanted as the police began to beat people in the street. Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy fell to assassins' bullets, and in Mexico City, Olympic athletes Tommy Smith and John Carlos raised black-fisted salutes to protest racial inequality back home. The world's spotlight was on America, and it revealed some very ugly things. The economy didn't help either. Nixon inherited a recession from Lyndon Johnson when he took office in 1963. Johnson spent generously on his great society programs and on the Vietnam War. Congress was conflicted over Vietnam, but they continued to fund it. They also increased spending on social welfare programs, and in 1972, both Congress and Nixon agreed to expand Social Security just in time for the elections. The truth was that Nixon wanted low interest rates that would promote short-term growth and make the economy seem strong as voters were casting ballots. And no big surprise, it worked, at least in the short term. Nixon carried 49 states to win the election. Inflation was in the low single digits, but not for long. A year later, inflation in the U.S. more than doubled to almost 9%, and soon it went to 12 With the oil crisis and Watergate and credit cards offering 21% interest rates, confidence fell and unemployment went to 10%. They weren't good times. The only good news was that the Vietnam War was ending, but the country was tired. It needed a do-over. And so it was that a great migration of reality-weary young people began, a Transamerica hegira from east to west. 
They fled in search of something, a new lifestyle, a job, a dream. It was a human avalanche, and it went on for a decade. I mean, my idea when I, when I went on my two-year journey was that I wanted, to, I wanted to be a rock and roll star. So I was on a tour. I'm going to take my guitar, and it's going to be Jim Driscoll tour for how long it takes. Obviously, that's Jim Driscoll. As you can tell from his slight accent, Jim is from Brooklyn, and in 1978, he wanted to make his way to San Francisco. But he had no money. He was 19, and flying was out of the question. And as for driving... Now, at that point, I didn't have a driver's license. So I traveled for two years hitching cross-country. So this is just one part of that two-year journey. Um, uh, I, I didn't get a driver's license until I came back to New York work for the, in the industry, until I was in my, my late 20s, literally. So flying and driving were out, so that left Greyhound. But Greyhound was expensive, so Jim began to look for options, and one day he found the Grey Rabbit. And the story, went, the story that I heard of how they got the name Grey Rabbit is that they bought their first bus from Greyhound and didn't pay off the loan. So the Greyhound was always chasing the Grey Rabbit. In response to high demand for transportation and complaints about the high price of commercial bus services, unlicensed bus companies began to pop up all over the country like mushrooms with names like the Lame Duck, the Blue Goose, the Red Bus, and the Iron Pony. The Grey Rabbit was one of those. The Grey Rabbit got its start in 1971 when Lester Rawl began to haul passengers up and down the Pacific coast in a Volkswagen bus called the Traveling Magical Universe. He eventually changed the name to the Grey Rabbit, which operated long-distance bus service between 1971 and 1983. Now, in 1972, he bought an old school bus, and the next year he bought three used Greyhound buses. By then, his buses were making regular weekly trips between San Francisco and New York, but this was not a commercial service by any means. It was, however, creative. There was this storefront in San Francisco, so we would go there, and then you would, you would end up paying $65 for a one-way ticket from there to New York. Now, the key was that it was in a, in a bus, right, and they, these were old buses. All the seats were taken out. A platform was built where the seats were, and four seats were left in, and there was a back compartment. And some of the buses in the back compartment had a full set of, of, uh, of meters, speed meters and oil and all that stuff, because we, they would travel all the time. We wouldn't, we wouldn't actually stop for anything. So it took two drivers to drive cross-country in about three, four days. So what would happen is that you would go to the storefront, right, and you'd bring your baggage, and... And it was under a church name, Church of World Community Consciousness at that point in time, which was a big deal back in, back in those days. Okay, so let me stop there. The Church of World Community Consciousness. In those days, you could go online, pay a fee, register as a church, and become the minister of that church, which is how the linkage between the Grey Rabbit and the Church of World Community Consciousness came about. All these churches were kind of started as, as, uh, as draft-dodging deals. Right. So, you know, um, they started and made little cards that should have a donation of $65. And what we would, what you'd do is that you'd get a ticket for you, a receipt, and you get a receipt on your baggage. So we knew whose baggage was which. You'd go on the bus and we'd fit, I don't know, I want to say 40 people. Because you would lay down this way, right? There'd be just a bench with mattresses, the whole bus, except for four seats. The reason it was that is that once you took out all the seats and made it four buses, it was then an RV. It wasn't a bus technically, 
right? So you actually lay down feet to feet, right, across the whole whole bus. And the bus driver was just changed, and you just go forever. You would stop at truck stops, and people would get food or bring food on board or whatever. And, and you just, the whole time the bus would be moving. I mean, it looked like when people were loading a, a church bus. I mean, that's what it looked like. You know, people had backpacks. Oh, it's a camping thing. You know, just, you would not stop and say, oh, look at that, an underground bus company. It just, it just, it just didn't look like that. You know, it looked like a lot of young people getting on a bus with backpacks. Okay, what's unusual about that in, 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 in 1974? Nothing. By the mid-70s, Gray Rabbit had grown to 10 buses and was running regular trips between New York and San Francisco, but also between New York and Boston, and from the Bay Area up to Portland, Seattle, and Vancouver. You know, I ended up actually hanging out there for like two months in San Francisco and in New York and kind of going back and forth 9 to 10, 12 times um, and just kind of surviving, <laughs> which was which was a large part of my life at that point, just kind of traveling and, and uh uh, you know, and there's two, there's, you know, there's a southern route and a northern route that would go at different times. But it would literally be driving all along with, with, with people who either thought it was a cool thing to do, not to get cross-country for a little money. People who, obviously, looking back on it, didn't want to be known that they were traveling anywhere, right? God knows what anybody was carrying in any suitcase. I have no idea, right? And And there was no tracking of you. You know, there's no... It's all cash deal. It's all, you know, we didn't take credit card, none of that stuff. So it was pretty, you know, non-conspicuous ways. And at that point, I don't know. I know they were around for a lot longer than, than I dealt with them. So, For its first 10 years, Gray Rabbit operated without having a license from the Interstate Commerce Commission. Now, under normal circumstances, this might have been a problem. It was the ICC, after all, and that was supposed to be the watchdog over the national transportation system. But the times were a bit different, at least according to Jim Driscoll. I was there when the Patty Hearst thing. We were literally down the two blocks down. So from two blocks down was Patty Hearst was picked up. So this was a really weird time in San Francisco. These are not times where the federal government was looking at transportation issues within the United States, right? The other issue is that in a kind of weird way, we were serving a huge need. I mean, this is $65. This is the best deal you're going to get going across. There was nothing better. And you're going to get there in three days. So even though this was a pretty laid-back company, it was still a complex undertaking. I know at one point we were traveling three buses out of San Francisco, so that had to be at least six buses in total. But these are real big-time buses. These are real money. <laughs> and, and they had to be repaired, maintained, fuel costs, all that stuff had to go in there. I don't, you know, you know, if, if you subtract the fuel cost, I mean, you're running cross-country. You know, it's costing you a chunk of money for fuel. There, there were two routes. There was a northern route. Route 80, boom, 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 just take Route 80, and then there was a southern route, Route 66, which old Route 66, which was the southern route. So depending on the weather, right, um, you would go northern route or southern route. And those are two typical routes of, of what it is today. Um, you know, Route 80 just, and there's a real north-northern route. There's like, and, and, and it's hard for me to remember, but there was, there was three major routes in, in America, you know, and I know Route 80 is one of them, and there's one in the southern part and, and, and in the middle of the country. And it depends on the weather, where you would go, and, and, you know, because buses don't do real well in snow, you know. Now, I did it in the summertime, so weather wasn't that big of an issue, but, you know, I mean, the bus is going 24 hours a day, guys would nap in the backs, 
compartment while the other guy drove. You know, there was a couple seats up front to keep the driver company. So it's for, you know, first time I would be in the back and then a lot of times I'd be up by the front because I knew all the guys. Um, and you knew certain drivers, you know, and, and, you know, but, you know, and they were all pretty mellow and there was always cash because, you know, none of the stuff that we have today existed then. You know, you didn't have credit cards, you, didn't, you know, you didn't have any of that stuff. It was all cash, you know, everything, you know. Um, so you had to give a chunk of cash, you going, you know, chunk of cash for fuel, chunk of cash for this, right? We didn't have fuel deals or any of that stuff, you know. Um, and then, you know, oh, and CBs. God, every bus had a CB. So, you know, it was always knowing what was happening on the road. And, and in those days, a uh, bus was called Stagecoach, right? Well, in CB, all along America, there's truck stops, big time truck stops. And, you, and if you travel at all in America, you see it. truck stop and they all have showers and, you know, all that stuff, which is great. I mean, when, you, when you're really on the road like that, when you're a long haul driver, right? Those things are really nice to have to take a shower. Also. So we'd stop at some major truck stops. So what was it like to cross the country on one of those gray rabbit buses? I asked Jim. I mean, you're just camping, right? It was some strangers, but you were camping. You had your little space where you would sleep on. And, you know, you'd kind of have conversations. In the, and it just like moving on. Then every once in a while, you'd stop and you'd be in a truck stop or a camp area or, or an area where the drivers knew that, that it was someplace they could pull a bus over and hang out for a little while. And it was just a little journey, you know. It was just nobody had a lot of money. In the late 1970s, the federal government decided to deregulate the airline industry, which, among other things, caused prices to drop. But it wasn't just the airlines. Greyhound dropped its prices as well, and soon Grey Rabbit and the other companies I mentioned earlier just couldn't compete. In fact, all of them went out of business by 1982 except the Grey Rabbit and the Green Tortoise. But even the Grey Rabbit struggled to survive, and in 1983, they seized operations and were acquired by Green Tortoise, which still runs today as a low-cost adventure travel company. But during that time, during the great youth migration of the 1960s and 70s, the Gray Rabbit served a purpose. You know, I look at it, I look at it historically, because I think, I think it comes from, from the Dust Bowl era. I think Americans and, and people in general has always moved, right? In, in, in times of, of, of crisis, we, always, we, we live in a huge country, right? And, 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 and my desire, being raised in Brooklyn, man, I wanted to, you know, I was that hippie kid who wanted to see Berkeley. I mean, that was it, man. I wanted to see Haight-Ashbury. I think that desire to find something better someplace else in America is kind of always there. And I, and I, I think this, this comes from that, 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 you know, hobos and, and, you know, riding the rails. And, and this was just another thing of that type. I'm, I'm not sure what's out there now. You know, uh, I'm, I'm not sure, and I think that's part of part of the problem that we have now. Because, you know, I saw at that time, at that age, all sorts of cities where people weren't making a lot of money, right? I intermingled with people who I would never intermingle with unless I traveled, right? And I think that traveling makes you different, wherever it is. I don't care whether it's, it's you know, um, going in Europe or Asia or, or traveling cross country or traveling upstate New York, I think it makes you different. Um, and there's one interest today is that travel has become very costly. Um, and, and, and young people don't really, you know, they travel with their school, they, they, they maybe go abroad to study, but it's not the same. You know, I mean, if you're out there and, you, and you're traveling on your, on your wallet or your knowledge base or your ability to sing a song or your whatever your deal is, 
that's very different. And, and I think you see a different layer of, of people in, in those travels. I'm Steve Shepard for the Natural Curiosity Project. Thanks for taking this trip back in the Wayback Machine with me. And thanks for dropping by. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.